Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This is Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. I'm Miranda Johnson, The Economist's environment correspondent. Coming up on this week's show... Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales tells us how his encyclopedic community is reacting in a post-truth era. There have been some wonderful things that have happened uh, with, the, with the Russian Wikipedians talking to the Ukrainian Wikipedians and really saying, you know, how do we make sure that we are fair in both languages? How do we make sure that we're reporting more or less the same thing in both languages? The shape of proteins determine everything they do, but figuring them out is tricky. We'll hear about how citizen science is helping us unravel the problem. This programme called Rosetta at Home is a screensaver that anyone can download and it runs in the idle time of your computer and he uses that to fold proteins reasonably successfully. And with bee numbers declining around the world, could robot drones help? A drone as in the kind that are engaged in warfare and flying and dropping Amazon packages and this sort of thing and get them to go flower to flower to do the pollination if the insect numbers completely collapse. Wikipedia is an online collaborative encyclopedia, and anyone with internet access can contribute or edit. Since its inception, it's grown into a global hub of knowledge with over 5 million articles in English alone. But what practical barriers pop up when this digital project crosses national and linguistic borders? And how is the website reacting in the era of post-truth and fake news? Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, spoke with founder Jimmy Wales to find out. So what's interesting for us is, you know, a lot of the fake news stuff that's been a a big problem in the last election cycle in the U.S. in particular, we've seen it, uh, is that people who are are not sort of media savvy consumers, they see something that looks like a news website and it looks quite plausible and it's alarming. Either it's something they are excited about or they fear, either way, they're compelled to tell their friends about it. And so they share it to their friends, and some percentage of them are also not media savvy, and they share it to their friends, and these things go viral, and millions of people see it. At Wikipedia, this would never happen, because the group of very experienced Wikipedia editors who've been at this for many years, if they see a news headline that says Hillary Clinton will be arrested next week, they're going to go, hmm, that, that's surprising, and where is it from? I think this particular one came from uh, something called the Denver Guardian, which, of course, isn't a real news source. It's a completely fake thing. Uh, and so, therefore, they would just say, well, that's fake, and they would just uh, remove it or block it or you know whatever it needs to be done. And so we've had very little problem with that kind of thing working its way into Wikipedia. Uh, at the same time, there's fake news in the sense of things that are completely fake, and then there's the whole spectrum of media sources. So we have, you know, very high quality, serious newspapers. We have tabloids, which can sometimes be, uh, particularly in the UK where I live, quite political. And thinking through and vetting those, what counts for quality? When do you trust a source? When do you not? That becomes a very complex judgment. And just as it would be a complex judgment for any journalist to figure out uh, if a source is reliable or not, there are no magic answers here. And so we do talk about it a lot. We struggle with it. We think about it. 
What about geographical differences then? Do you see any discrepancies there in what people contribute? Uh, one of the things that we see is that if we look at the, the issue of Crimea and you look in uh, Russian Wikipedia versus Ukrainian Wikipedia, there's a lot of struggle there. And those communities actually are friendly to each other. They talk to each other. They work on this as a problem. But it's a really complex problem because the Russian language media, even quality media in Russia, which would normally be considered a normal, reliable source, and good quality papers in, in Ukraine, which would be considered a reliable source. On this one issue, uh, they may not be. They'll tell very, very different stories, not just fading or shading the attitude about the story, but I mean completely different stories about fundamental factual matters, which means that the communities really have to struggle to make sure that they're hearing both sides and describing both sides fairly. And this, of course, becomes even more difficult when emotions are high, etc., etc. So that's an interesting case study where there have been some wonderful things that have happened uh, with, the, with the Russian Wikipedians talking to the Ukrainian Wikipedians and really saying, you know, how do we make sure that we are fair in both languages? How do we make sure that we're reporting more or less the same thing in both languages? And they, they haven't been 100% successful, but I think that it's important that they try. Does anything change for you for Wikipedia in the Trump era? Well... Uh, <laughs> it's complicated. Uh, n not directly. I mean, we are very passionate defenders worldwide of the fundamental right of freedom of expression. That's been a big part of my personal advocacy and the things that we do. And various things that Trump has tweeted or said don't sound necessarily all that friendly to freedom of expression. So we worry about that. But we also, you know, there's certain kinds of pressures that a president can put on media that are very hard to put on us. So, for example, let's say you're a major TV news network and you fear that you're going to be excluded or you're not going to have access and then therefore you have no access to news and therefore you've got a problem. But for us, this is completely not an issue. We have no access anyway. So that doesn't really directly affect us. On the other hand, it indirectly affects us, right? If, if to the extent that we have a president who is intimidating towards investigative journalism, to the extent he's successful, then obviously that will end up being reflected in what's known publicly and therefore what's known for Wikipedia. So indirectly, yes. But we don't expect to see any immediate sort of direct legal uh, threats or problems for us. You've had no, no complaints about your Donald Trump entry? <laughs> Not from him, no. I, I don't think so, anyway. I think I would, I would have been told had we had. We had. But, uh, yeah, there's always the chance. We'll see. Next, proteins are pretty important to us. Known as the building blocks of life, they carry out a whole host of functions that keep us alive. Which function each protein is destined to carry out depends on its shape. But finding out what those shapes are is a particularly fiddly problem for scientists. Here to tell us how it might be solved is Anono Bhattacharya, our science correspondent. Hey, hey, Ananya. Hi, Miranda. I know that this topic is particularly dear to you. I don't know if you want to explain why. Well, I think you must be alluding to the fact that I wasted seven years of my life doing research <laughs> into, into the structure of proteins before I saw the light and became a science journalist. Fantastic. Well, um, perhaps you're a very good person then to explain to us um, exactly what proteins are and how their shape and their function interrelate. Well, there are thousands of them and they're composed of a string of chemicals called amino acids. The protein-making machinery in each cell produces that long string and somehow that string of amino acids folds up 
to form a protein. And the protein folding problem, which has been troubling scientists for over half a century now, is how does it work? How does it happen? How does this chain know how to fold up into a protein's shape? And what kind of medical applications are there from knowing precisely how it does fold up? Almost every drug that we know of now and that we use does its work by binding to a protein and somehow changing its function, either scuppering it or helping it in some way. So if you know the structure of a protein, then in theory that helps you design drugs to fit cavities or parts of the protein that will affect its function. Because they, they stick to certain, certain points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what are scientists doing to learn a little bit more about this folding process? So they've been attacking this problem in different ways. We know that it's, it's almost impossible to calculate sort of from first principles the physics of how this amino acid chain is going to fold. You imagine this chain getting longer and longer, becoming hundreds of amino acids long, um, a protein could be composed of you know upwards of a thousand, and uh, knowing how each amino acid interacts with another and until it forms a shape, that's that's going to evade even the best supercomputers that we have. So what they've been looking at doing is trying to come up with some understanding of how stable a particular shape of a protein is. And David Baker, who has been one of the leading uh, protein folders. His program, Rosetta, just tries out a bunch of different shapes and finds the most stable conformation. A version of his program called Rosetta at Home is a screensaver that anyone can download and it runs in the idle time of your computer and he uses that to fold proteins reasonably successfully. So uh, David Baker, where's he working? He's at the University of Washington and Rosetta is about 20 years old but a couple of weeks ago he made a real breakthrough and managed to come up with 81 proteins, which represent 81 families, which have never been seen before. With the help of people who are not at the University of Washington, indeed people who are dotted all about the world and using the screensaver. Absolutely, hundreds of thousands of uh, computers all over the world. That's absolutely incredible. And is that helping us get a little tiny bit closer to solving the problem of, you know, understanding form and function here a little bit better with proteins. Yeah, I mean, with these new proteins, uh, we're beginning to understand how these proteins are working in the cell. And that, at some point, may well help us with drug design. I think one drawback of Baker's approach is that he needs a lot of genetic sequence data. And there simply isn't that sort of data available for, for humans. And so the proteins he's been looking at are largely sort of bacterial proteins. Is it uh, a, a problem of cash or time or complexity? Why don't we have that data? To, to get Rosetta to work, you need different sequences for the same protein from related species. Now, humans, we're, we're all pretty much alike, and that's a problem. You know, we can have thousands of human sequences, but still those sequences are pretty similar to each other. What you really need is lots of sequences from not just mammals, birds, and so on, but the whole gamut of complex life. And we simply just don't have that number of sequences for complex life at the moment. But there is help around the corner on that. Oh, really? Things are on, new things are on the horizon? 
Yeah, there is help coming from an area of artificial intelligence known as deep learning. And these are complex neural networks. And what we're seeing is some people are applying these systems now to the protein folding problem with considerable success. And they may well be able to beat David Baker at his own game. Wow, incredible stuff. Oh, no, no, thank you so much. Thank you. In last week's show, we discussed how augmented reality technology is heading into the mainstream. The idea of superimposing digital information onto the world that we perceive drew some attention on social media. On Facebook, Prashun Chakraborty wrote, First and foremost, make easier devices. The cell phone boom happened because they are easy to use and carry, but these AR and VR headsets are bulky and not a pleasant experience. Couldn't agree more. And Twitter user Michelle Miller thought that with augmented reality, potential uses for travel, education, e-commerce are numerous. We just need affordable, sleek options so consumers get their feet wet. Yeah, and perhaps if augmented reality technology starts to include other senses, we'll be able to feel our feet getting wet too. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, it's available through Acast or iTunes or on our website. Finally, we turn to a global plight in nature. Bees have a crucial role in ecosystems, agriculture and food production, but their numbers have been declining for years. And while scientists scramble to figure out exactly how and why this is happening, the rate of decline is increasing. So could robots fly to the rescue? Here to tell us about plans for artificial pollinators is science correspondent Matt Kaplan. Hey, Matt. Hey, Miranda. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Obviously, as an environment correspondent, I care enormously about biodiversity and preserving both creatures and their habitats. And I wondered if you could tell us about the effects we can expect to see as bee numbers decline. I mean, why are people creating artificial pollinators anyway? What's the worry here? Well, yeah, so honeybees are incredibly important, and not just honeybees. There are a lot of insects that go from plant to plant, and they're going and collecting nectar and other nutrients that are valuable to them. But the real benefit to the plant is that when the insect goes inside the flower to go and collect that nectar, it's also getting covered in pollen. And as it then travels to other members of that plant species, it helps the plants to, to have sex. It spreads their, their gametes from one to the other so that they're able to sexually reproduce. And sexual reproduction is absolutely essential to the survival of plants in the long run. But the thing is, as honeybee numbers decline and other insects decline, we stop seeing the potential for them to be able to do this. Tell us about how artificial pollination and how an ultimate drone could help sort this. The idea is that if you can't keep the insects doing the job, then you could actually create a drone. I mean, this is no pun intended with the insects. A drone as in the kinds that are engaged in warfare and flying and dropping Amazon packages and this sort of thing, and get them to go flower to flower to do the pollination if the insect numbers completely collapse. It's far from ideal, but the big step that people have been having difficulty with is being able to get a drone to go up and stick something into a flower that will allow the pollen to stick to it, such that the pollen will then later fall off in later flowers. Honeybees do this naturally because their fur is kind of this perfect substance for attaching to pollen and then losing it later. But finding something that was appropriate for that job has proved difficult, and that's what these guys in Japan have set up and done. They've created ionic liquid gels, which are these semi-sticky solids that you can put onto, like, 
a horsehair or a, a paintbrush. And then as it goes into the, the flower, it collects some of that pollen. And if you stick it into another flower, it can fall off later and pollinate for you. And who operates these drones? And how long before I walk through a field in rural England and see some? Yeah, I mean, the hope is that you'll never see them, Miranda. The hope is that we'll keep colonies of, of bees doing just fine and that we'll never have to invest in something like this. But we're certainly capable of pollinating flowers, but at the moment the, the drones are, are piloted by humans. What they need is video recognition of the different parts of the flower so that they can be trained effectively to fly to a flower and know where they're supposed to stick their hair stuck with this, this liquid gel so that it can be covered with pollen. That's still a little bit away, but it's not that far because face recognition and image recognition software is stuff that already exists. It just has to be adapted to be appropriate for a drone to go flower to flower. And is this all fantastically expensive? We don't have a price tag on it yet, but it really, you know, practically the drones that they're using are, are, are relatively inexpensive. And once you get this kind of thing working, it shouldn't be astronomical. But let's face it, it'd be so much cheaper if we just didn't kill off all the honeybees. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much, Matt. My pleasure, Miranda. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Babbage. Don't forget you can send in all of your comments, questions and feedback to radio at economist.com. You can also rate our podcast in the App Store or on Acast. In London, this is The Economist. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.